Would you all stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning? Our reading comes out of Psalm 122 as we continue on in our series, uh, The Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 122, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. This is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May their peace be within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father God, we ask in this moment, in this place with these people, that you would illuminate truths, that you would speak to our hearts, to our minds, God, that you would continuously shape us, both as individuals and a community that is worshiping you now and evermore. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, a well-known author by the name of Malcolm Gladwell, which many of you may have heard of before, wrote a really popular book that was titled Outliers, The Story of Success. In the book, Gladwell attempts to shed light on the reasons why certain people in our culture and our society are much more successful than the rest of us, right? The rest of us would be most of us sitting in this room. But, and he, he goes and he investigates what are the paths that people walk in order to be successful. And, and in his book, he kind of begins to deconstruct some myths that many of us have presumed uh, equate success. And one of the myths that he tries to kind of deconstruct is this idea or thought that we have that the reason why people are successful is because they're naturally more gifted than the rest of us. The myth usually works out something like this. Bill Gates is successful because he's just naturally smarter than everyone else. Michael Jordan is successful, was successful, because he's naturally more athletic than everyone else. The Beatles were more successful because they naturally rocked harder than everyone else, right? But attributing such success just to natural ability to Malcolm Gladwell is a big mistake. And in his book, he tries to illuminate the various reasons why people are successful, what makes success possible. In the second chapter of his book, he argues that in order for success to be achieved in any task, computer programming, sports, music, a person needs to have practiced that task at least 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours hours of practice. Do you know how long 10,000 hours is? In 10,000 hours, you could watch The Sound of Music 57 and a half times. That movie is so long. I thought it was going to be more than that, and then I realized, wait, it was two VHS tapes, right? The Apollo astronauts could have traveled to the moon and back 65 times in 10,000 hours. You could fly around the world in a B-2 bomber 240 times, assuming that you didn't need to stop for fuel, in 10,000 hours. You could orbit the Earth in the space shuttle six, over 6,500 times in 10,000 hours. 
And you could listen to Beethoven's longest symphony over 7,500 times in 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours is a lot of stinking hours to do something over and over and over again. I mean, that's a lot of circles. It's a lot of flying, a lot of stringed instruments, and a whole lot of Julie Andrews for 10,000 hours. But regardless of the exact science of this rule, this principle of doing something for 10,000 hours, the idea that it kind of brings to the forefront is pretty, I mean, common, right? It is the idea is you have to practice at something, you have to work at something in order to be really, really good at it. It takes a lot of practice to, uh, to achieve excellence in anything. This is why parents encourage their young children to study and read frequently and often. This is why coaches want their athletes to be practicing daily, weekly, monthly, hourly. We can't just do club soccer for one season. We need to have club soccer all year long because if you want excellence, you have to practice that much. This is why teachers, believe it or not, students, this is why teachers assign summer homework and reading for you because if you're not doing it, you're going to be losing it, right? And though we live in a society that bombards us with get-rich-quick schemes, promises of instant gratification, ready-made solutions, and a shortcut to success, we all know, down in the deep depths of our hearts and minds, that it takes time, commitment, and a lot of practice to be excellent at something. And though our destination as Christians is not success, but godliness, righteousness, and life with our Creator, our journey, our pilgrimage to God by the way of Jesus Christ also requires our time, commitment, and countless hours of practice. Or, in the words of our sermon series, a long obedience in the same direction. This morning, our psalm reveals to us, a psalm of David, about the significance of gathering, of what we're doing here right now, of gathering together corporately for worship. The significance of that in the life of a believer, David begins to reveal to us in this psalm. Um, In other words, like, it's really good for you to come to church every week, right? It's really good for all of us to come together for an hour, hour and a half, Last week was like five hours to come to church each and every week. I'm just kidding. It was like hour 45. (laughs) Sorry. So I'm going to cut my sermon a little short. Yeah. Uh, This week, we'll we'll give you your 15 minutes back. But what we also discover in this psalm this morning is that what we do here each and every week is something that God's people have always done. For years, for centuries, and literally for millennia, God's people have constantly gathered together in a single place to worship him. What we do here is what Billy Graham does each week. It's what Mother Teresa did each week of her life. It's what Martin Luther King Jr. did each week. C.S. Lewis, John Wesley, Martin Luther Senior, I'm just kidding, not Martin, well, probably Martin Luther Senior also, but Martin Luther the Reformer, John Wycliffe, Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine or Augustine, the Apostles Peter and John and King David all worshipped our God regularly and in community, and we join that tradition each week we come. 
And it's an essential element to anybody who considers himself a part of God's people. Now, as I was preparing for this sermon, I realized, and I confess to you, it is a bit, or not, not that it is, it could be misconstrued to have a pastor tell his congregation, you need to show up to church on Sundays, right? Like, it's kind of, I don't know, I kind of have an interest in you being here, and the cynics would probably say, well, he probably wants them to come so that tithes will increase and we'll have more money, or perhaps you might think, well, it looks really good on a pastor's resume if his church is constantly coming or the numbers increase, right? Like any cynical person could say that. But this morning, what I want us to do is lay aside any cynical explanations a pastor might have for his congregation about showing up to worship and hear and discover the reasons why David, in this psalm, expresses joy to go to worship with his friends and community. Being a youth pastor, I can say, uh, I think I can say pretty confidently that I have rarely, if ever, invited a student to church and they busted out doing like the Macarena or the robot or the Dougie. No, no Dougie fans in the house. Okay, you guys probably don't know what that is, but it's really weird, these dance names that these kids do. I don't quite understand these young people. But yet what we discover in the passage is that worshiping God brings, a, it's a source of joy for David. It, and what I want to do this morning is unearth how do we as a community discover what it's like to, to rejoice in God's, in our worship collectively together of our God? How do we begin to practice or participate in this sort of rejoicing for Sunday mornings? And I, what I see in the psalm is that the source of joy for David comes from three different places. From the people, the actual place of worship, and the pronouncements that take place during worship. The people, the place, and the pronouncements. In 1981, a uh, businessman walked into a local cafe in the Pike Place Market in Seattle, Washington for the first time. The experience completely changed his life, and it completely changed my life, too. <laughs> Within several years, and with the help of several private investors, the businessman purchased the cafe that we all know as... Say it with more joy. Starbucks. I had Starbucks this morning. That's why I'm in a good mood. But from the very beginning of the company's existence, Starbucks had a vision of what they wanted to be about. Is that they always intended to be about more than just coffee. Starbucks coffee houses, if you read uh, Howard Schultz's book, he talks a lot about Starbucks coffee houses functioning as third place destinations or the third place in the life of people in our country. A place... Uh, between home and work. That sounds so cute, right? Because we spend so much of our time at home and work. And Lord knows we can't spend all of our time with our kids, and we can't spend all of our time with our jobs. And so we need, like, this third place to connect with people that isn't work and home. And Starbucks tries to fill this void that we have in our lives where we can connect and converse at affordable prices, right? For over a latte or a frappuccino, Ironically, they give you an addicting beverage, right, to keep you coming. I'm like, this is just brilliant. The whole thing was just brilliant from the start. 
But Howard Schultz, the founder and CEO, is more than just a marketing thing for him. Is for him, like what I've read uh, uh, his book and read about him, is that he identifies that there's a need for all of us to connect with one another. So it wasn't about growing this company really for him. Is that really he wanted to create a company that created a better society. And he thought one way of doing that was to get people to connect and talk to each other. He wrote in this book, in his book uh, Onward, he, he, he writes this one line, which is just, I think, summarizes it all up. He says, we are all hungry for community. We are all hungry for community. Now, the, the, this sounds kind of like a profound insight, right? But I imagine the wisdom of these words doesn't rest in Howard Schultz's mind. It, it rests in how God created and designed the world. I think he stole the line from the Bible, actually, right? It's like from the very beginning of the scriptures, we quickly discover that we were designed or created for community. It is not good for man to be alone. In our wisdom literature in Ecclesiastes, two is better than one. In Proverbs, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Is that God created the world, created us in his image, and we are designed and created for community. And even though Adam experienced life as close as you can get in this world, in perfect harmony with God, we still find him in the garden realizing that there's some sort of incompleteness to this, is that he needs a mate, he needs a spouse, he needs a companion. And so God creates woman because there's something in us that God created that requires us to be together. And this design for community comes into direct collision with the me, myself, and Jesus spirituality that is becoming increasingly popular in our world today. The branding of technology and social media that pander to individualism is just like overwhelming, right? iPhone, MySpace, YouTube, iPad, i this, i that, right? Like it all kind of, it's, it's trying to promote an individualism. And what has begun to happen in recent years is that's begun to seep into our psyches. It's begun to seep into our minds and our thoughts. We're Americans. We like individualism, right? And so these sentiments are being expressed then in the church. And, and there, I mean, there's popular ideas, books. I mean, just in conversations with young believers, myself, this idea that I can love Jesus but not the church because it's just me and God. It's just me and God. But the problem with that is that that's not the way God designed his people to worship him. There's no such thing as an I Christian, my spirituality, or you faith. Thank you. I thought that was clever too. I was like <laughs> sitting in my office and I'm like, nice. I like that. This is what I do all week. This is what I do all week. You want to know what I do all week? This is it. <laughs> oh. It's so great when those quirks in your personality, like people can share them with you. That's so good. I legit giggle when I do write stuff like that. It's so funny. Anyways, I don't giggle. I laugh. But during my first couple years of college, I kind of walked into this myself, actually. And this was the thing that I struggled with. This is, is why do I need to go to church? Like, my parents are 2,500 miles away, or I was 2,500 miles away from them. Boom. But, like, why did I need to go to church? 
Oh, my mom's gonna stand up again. No, <laughs> stay seated. <laughs> but in my mind, the thought was, I have a Chris Tomlin CD, I have a Francis Chan podcast, and like, I'm set. I can wake up at like noon, don't need to wake up early, don't need a shower, don't need to get dressed up. I can wake up at noon and listen to that, and it'll be good, and it's fine, and I can sing songs. You know, you could have this sort of emotional, compelling experience or land on some like really important wisdom or insight through a podcast, but it took me, embarrassingly maybe, it took me far longer than I would like to admit to realize that I couldn't replicate corporate worship in my own life. I I couldn't replicate it through technology sitting in my dorm room. And the reason was, and still is, because the Christian call or the Christian vocation to worship is not just designed for me, myself, and I. I cannot fully participate in worship the way God designed us to worship him. I couldn't baptize myself. I was already baptized, but I couldn't baptize myself. I couldn't see other people be baptized. I couldn't baptize others. I couldn't give myself communion. I couldn't tithe to myself. If I ever found a spouse, I wouldn't be able to perform the wedding ceremony, which is a worship service without a minister. Even prayer, according to Jesus in Matthew, was designed to be most effective where two or three are gathered. The simple fact is that worship becomes incomplete without community. Certainly any Christians can worship doing anything in their life and world. Paul says in Romans 12, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, as living worship in everything that you do in your life, but our worship cannot be made complete without one another. We cannot fully worship uh, without one another. Sorry, I just said that's embarrassing. Without the church, our worship is incomplete. The joy of corporate worship comes when we realize that those who are sitting to our left and to our right, behind us, in front of us, that these people make our chief aim in life possible. The chief aim of our existence complete is to worship God. People in our faith community give us reason to rejoice to come to corporate worship. But in addition to the people, the place too for David, Jerusalem, is a source of rejoicing. As has much been celebrated over the past several months, we have recently put a new roof on our sanctuary and facility. And though we have often stared and stood proudly gazing at this achievement, I still catch a few people who are like, wow, didn't we put a new, yeah, we did, we did, where have you been? But I seriously doubt that even though we admire and are super excited about our roof, anybody woke up on Sunday morning and thought to themselves, ooh, yeah, the church roof is there. I can't wait to get to church this morning, right? Like nobody does that. But if you did, I want to remind you We have a church work day on June 15th that we want you to come on out if you love this facility that much. Little plug, little shameless plug. And yet David seems to express joy over the place of worship, over Jerusalem. Now we would do well here to remember that at this point that the Psalms are mostly a form of Hebrew poetry. One of the dominant features of poetry, this is really interesting actually, is that poetry uses metaphorical language in all cultures, at all times, and in all places. Fascinating. For example, if I wrote a poem to my girlfriend, which I don't do, but maybe I should because I hear that it's cute. But if I wrote a poem to my girlfriend and I compared her beauty to a sunset, I would not be telling her 
that her beauty is quickly disappearing or that her face was really orange and pink. That would be so weird. And she would quickly become my ex-girlfriend, I imagine. But using such a phrase is to express that her beauty is something that leaves me speechless, that it is entirely unique to her, and that I wish it would never fade from my sight, which all of that is true. She's going to listen to this podcast, so it's all true. That's right. But I know, score points whenever you can. I've learned that. I've learned that. But in similar vein, David uses the place of Jerusalem its sound structure, its design, its orderliness as a metaphor to describe what worship does for us, what worship does for God's people. If you place yourself into David's like, kind of worldview or culture, it is that you would realize that sophisticatedly designed cities were a novelty in his world. The vast majority of people lived out in rural areas where there weren't well-built roads, earthquake buildings or zoned areas for residential housing there's just no structure or order it was like wow this looks like a great place where our sheep could feed let's kind of construct some housing some whatever they housed in I should have done more research on that but for most walking into Jerusalem at this point in time would have been like walking through New York City after only having ever lived or known life on a farm in Ohio it would have been overwhelming You've been absolutely mesmerized with how ordered and structured and huge everything was. And what is true of the design of the architecture in Jerusalem should be true of our worship community, of our gatherings together in worship. Is our worship gatherings offer us a structured and ordered means to worship God? Our lives, we all know, are pulled in a million directions each week, right? Sporting competitions graduations this week, homework assignments, birthday parties, work obligations, people to see, places to go, things to do, a million things just pulling at our attention. And these things distract us from having effective lives of prayer, consistent study in scripture, and meaningful time with God throughout our week. And we're often reminded of this fact, right? Each new year for the New Year's resolution, or that retreat that we go to, or that really convicting sermon that just like uh, reminds us of what, quote, bad Christians we are. They all remind us and make us, compel us to kind of recommit to having regular spiritual activities that nurture our relationship with God. And we do this, all. I do this all the time. I don't know if you resonate with this, but I'm like, this is it. This is the month. This is the time. That was a sermon. I'm going to wake up every morning and pray at 5 a.m. It's always like an impossible task, right? I'm going to wake up early before work and pray. And maybe I do that for like two days, honestly. And then in three days, I'm like, oh, it was late night last night. Oh, man, that was a long day at work. I can't wake up tomorrow morning. I'll just sleep in. I'll get it to the day after, right? And this is what happens to our spiritual lives in our own personal time. It gets pushed to tomorrow, or the day after that, or the day after that. And finding regular time to meet with God becomes an afterthought eventually. I have heard, or, oh, sorry. Um, for me, uh, where was I going? I don't know, I lost my train of thought. I have heard many married couples, especially those with families, 
talk about the significance of a planned date night or planned meeting time that they have to nurture and kind of come together each week because they recognize it's so easy in this world and life to just do this and just go your separate ways. The busyness of life doesn't give us naturally time together. It's easy to drift. And the same is true in our relationship with God. It, too, requires intentional time and effort. Sunday morning church, our corporate worship services, serves as the most stable time of the week in which we, as a people, can connect with God. And we need it. This is why the author of Hebrews encourages us not to stop meeting and gathering together as so many of us are in the habit of doing. In fact, I wasn't sure if I was going to share this, but I'll share this with you. This isn't a, hear this, I'll preface it. This isn't a judgment claim. This is just a reality of the state of the church in America. The average church-going person goes to church 1.8 times a month. That means the average Christian person in America is not in church on Sundays more often they than they are in church on Sundays. I mean, how many times? I mean, if we can't even do that, what does our, what does our spiritual devotional life look like? When we, I mean, how many times have I got to the end of a week and realized I haven't spent a minute in prayer this whole week? I haven't spent a minute. I'm a, sometimes I'm working in the church, like I'm in church and I haven't prayed about anything all week. And this is what I am here for. Like in the Nazarene Manual, it says the first two things that a minister is supposed to do is pray and read scripture and study scripture. And there have been weeks where I've got to the end of my week and I'm like, I haven't spent a minute in scripture. I mean, a minute in prayer. I haven't read a verse or page of scripture outside of studying for a sermon or studying for a lesson for the youth group. And this happens to all of us. And so what we do when we gather here is we find joy in the fact that the church is here, built and ordered, to help nurture your relationship with God this week and all the weeks of your life. People, place, these are reasons for joy to come to corporate worship. But there's a third thing, the pronouncements of God. Now most of us in this passage it uses the word judgment. Most of us shudder at the thought of the word judgment in church, right? Like, we don't want to talk about God being judgmental. We don't want to be known as Christians who are judgmental. We don't want our church to be known in the community as like that church that judges people when you come there. It, because it kind of carries so many negative connotations, judgment, uh, when it's associated with religion. But I know one demographic of people... Uh, who cast judgment that are more hated than church uh, people or Christians. And those are referees and officials at sporting events. <laughs> I hate them. <laughs> referees, umpires, and officials, no offense if you are one, okay? This is, I'm just talking about the bad ones, okay? But they are the most despised people in our country, aren't they? Like, how many people have walked away from a sporting competition or watched one and thought, like, man, what a good referee. Like, never, not never has anybody said that, right? Name the sport, any sport, and I guarantee that the officials are hated. <laughs> if I surveyed all of you sitting here right now, I bet at least 50% of you could tell me a story about the worst referee ever. And I, I mean, not that I'm going to talk about the time when I got red carded in my second to last soccer game in high school, but 
for something that I didn't say. Not that I'm holding on to that, but we all know that there are referees and officials that are just atrocious. And the reasons why these judges are so irritating is because they make decisions about things that we frequently disagree with. Is they call things fouls that we don't think were fouls. They call things strikes that we thought were balls, or they call them balls and we thought they were strikes, whatever is in our favor, right? Or they call catches touchdowns when clearly it was an interception in Seattle. <laughs> so even with the like replay, like how did you blow that? I don't understand. But they make claims about the way things are, and it drives us insane. I can't even imagine playing a sport where it's like subjective judges like that give you a score like figure skating or gymnastics or diving. That would drive me up the wazoo. It's like you, you don't know any like, oh, I would lose it. I would lose it. But when many of us think of God as giving judgment, we typically think of God as functioning as like the perfect referee, right? But his calls aren't about balls and strikes or fouls or not fouls. But we think of God uh, about judging about what's right and wrong, good and bad, wicked and righteous, as if God was simply making judgment claims about the way we are or about the things that we do. But to describe God's judgment in this way would be incomplete. Certainly, God determines like what is good and what is bad. I'm not saying he doesn't. But God's, ju God's judgment is more than that. And his pronouncements of judgment moves David to rejoice. And this is why. For God's, uh, for God's judgments is less about the way things are, but it moves us into the way things should be. God doesn't just make claims about the way things are. It's his judgments are about moving us to the way things should be. Eugene Peterson defines God's judgments as the decisive word by which God straightens things out and puts things right. I'll say it again because it's super deep. God's judgments are the decisive word by which God straightens things out and puts things right. His judgment should be more closely understood with the job of a coach more than a referee. A coach highlights and points out things that his players are doing wrong so that they can begin to do them right. They're doing this over and over and over. How many times, if you've coached, I've coached, you see a kid do this, the same thing like wrong over and over and over and over again, but it takes a really long time till they finally begin to do it right where you can critique them and say, no, that's not, that's the wrong way. That's a wrong way to do that. You shouldn't kick a ball like that. You shouldn't throw a baseball like that. You shouldn't swing a bat like that. You actually need to do it this way. Because the reality is that God has designed us to live and walk in a certain way. And we don't do it naturally. We just don't. We make bad decisions. And the crazy thing is that sometimes we do things we didn't even know were wrong. And we don't realize why we're getting these sort of negative results or consequences. And yet when we come to corporate worship, when we hear God's word proclaimed and preached, he begins to set us right. He's not a judge that stands above us saying, bad, 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 figure it out on your own. He says, no, that, that's wrong. Let's try and get things right. 
Peterson goes on to describe how God's pronounced judgment come to us in every element of our worship service. I was thinking of like, he, he had this really cool thought that I wanted to try and like make sound better, but I just couldn't. But he talks about how our worship services are full of God's pronouncements to us. In the call to worship, you hear God speak, calling you to set your attention and focus right on him alone. Not on the music, on how many times we sang the song in the past week, or how good the coffee was this morning, or that there were no donut holes this morning, that they ran out. But he, the call to worship is a pronouncement that calls us to focus on God. In the reading of scripture, we hear God speaking to what Peterson calls our faith parents, those who have come before us. And in the sermon, we hear him speaking anew to us, re-expressing that same word to us, calling us to refocus something or redirect something in our lives. And every time we worship, we discover and become more familiar with these judgments of God, of what he says and what he has decided and how he's leading us. We should yearn to hear and know these things. And it is in worship that our minds begin to center on these divine words and proclamations. People, place, pronouncements. These things lead us to joy in worship together. Note, I did not say that joy should lead us to worship. I did not say that joy brings us to the people, that joy brings us to the place, or joy brings us to pronouncements. We're not to only worship God when we have joy. We don't just worship God when we feel like it. Rather, Christian worship of God, what we were designed for, should result in our mutual rejoicing in God. Our worship is a response to a call, not to our emotions. And so when people say, I just don't feel like going to church in the morning, the Christian call is to come regardless. When we capture this joy in worship, we'll never find ourselves satisfied in God, but more deeply hungry for him. The foretaste of God in worship will begin to pour into the rest of the week. It isn't limited to this place and this time and this hour. Rather, this place, our corporate worship, our joy that we find here begins to spill out into the other days of our week. And we begin to want him on more than just Sundays. We were made for worship. We were made to be in relationship with God. We were made for holiness. When you begin to practice and do that which you were made for, you will cease to be content with anything less. When you begin to practice and do that which you were created for, only then will your life be made whole and complete. Worship is an hour each week in which we practice what we were made for, to have our joy made complete in God. Can you imagine 10,000 hours spent together in worship, a long obedience in the same direction? There's a popular song right now that talks about 10,000 years worshiping God, a long obedience in the same direction. Let's make our corporate worship and gathering together a staple 
in our journey and pilgrimage to God so that he might have his way with us. Father God, we thank you that you teach us how to worship, that you call us to do it right. God, we recognize that we don't always live as your people perfectly or entirely or completely. And we ask, God, that as we, as people with a shared faith, as friends with a common belief and desire to glorify you, that you would use these times to continue to shape us as individuals, but also as a community. And God, we realize that everything we do are, at best, dirty rags. But may you receive this worship as every good father receives that from his children. It's in Christ's name that we pray.